very good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. It's the middle of the week already, Wednesday the 17th of August. And this is Money Talk on Radio 3. Chinese state-owned groups could guarantee the renminbi bonds of troubled property developers, easing some of their financial woes. Yesterday, online financial news platform Red said Chinese regulators plan to provide liquidity support to five or six developers via new yuan bonds guaranteed and underwritten by state-owned firms. The direct backing and guarantees from state-owned banks could provide a boost for lower-risk developers whose ability to finance debt obligations in the onshore market has come under pressure this year. Reuters is reporting Tencent will have to sell part or all of its 17% stake in food delivery giant Metuan, worth 24 billion US dollars, to appease regulators in Beijing. Tencent has been engaging with financial advisors in recent months to work out how to execute a potentially large sale of its Metuan stake. A source told Reuters that the regulators are apparently not happy that tech giants like Tencent have invested in and even become a big backer of various tech firms that run businesses closely related to people's livelihoods in the country. Hong Kong fund management representatives on Tuesday called on the government to lift all quarantine measures by November, saying it's crucial for the SAR to reconnect with the world. The Hong Kong Investment Funds Association said two-thirds of the firms it surveyed found it difficult to retain and attract international talent under the city's COVID restrictions. The association's CEO, Sally Wong, said we'll have a high-level investment summit and the Rugby Sevens in November. So I think it's pivotal that we can achieve normalcy by November because that's a very important window to show to the rest of the world. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft, Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks closed higher after better-than-expected earnings results from retailers, including Walmart and Home Depot. The S&P 500 inched 0.2% higher to 4,305. The Dow rose for a fifth straight day, rallying 240 points, or 0.7%, to close at 34,152. The Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.2% to 13,103. Shares in Walmart added more than 6% following its earnings report. Home Depot, which reported its highest quarterly sales and earnings on record, jumped 4%. And meme stocks were back in favour as Bed Bath & Beyond surged 75% at one stage before closing 29% higher. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index added 0.2%. The UK's FTSE 100 climbed 0.4%. Hong Kong stocks gave up early gains following the Reuters report that Tencent would have to sell part of all of its 17% stake in Metuan to appease regulators in Beijing. The Hang Seng Index sank 210 points, or 1.1%, to 19,831. The Tech Index slumped 2%. Metuan dropped over 9%, while Tencent rose 0.9%. Video service Guoshou Technology, which Tencent also has a stake in, fell 4.4%. Billy Billy dipped 2.5%. And in New York, e-commerce firm Pindodo, another Tencent-related company, dropped 3.5%. 
property developers jumped in Hong Kong on reports of support from state-owned entities. After online financial news platform Red said Chinese regulators plan to provide liquidity support to some select developers via new yuan bonds, which are going to be guaranteed and underwritten by state-owned firms. The list includes Longfall Group, Jimdale, Country Garden and Siffy Holdings. Shares of Siffy and Longfall closed over 12% higher, while Country Garden jumped 9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index added 0.1% to 3,278. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell 2.9% to $92.34 a barrel. That's the weakest since early February, and the oil benchmark has lost almost 6% so far this week on fears of a global economic slowdown. Gold is down at $1,776 an ounce. U.S. government bonds came under pressure with the yield on the 10-year Treasury note rising three basis points to 2.82%. And in the currency markets, the euro is unchanged at $1.1 cents. The Japanese yen is almost 1% weaker at 134.26 versus the dollar. Sterling is trading at $1.21 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 49 cents. And yesterday, China's offshore yuan slid past 6.8 for the first time in three months. This morning, it's trading at 6.79 and a half against the dollar. Bitcoin is at $23,800. And around Asia-Pacific stocks in Sydney, the SX200 uh, is currently down 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up half a percent. The Cosby in South Korea also up about a quarter of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a gain of about 100 points or so for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Eight oh nine and a half. Let's join our Wednesday morning team. As always, we have with us Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultants. Welcome, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. And over in the US this morning, we have Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Thanks for joining in. Good morning. Good morning and good evening, Barry. Yeah, good. <laughs> Barry in Washington, D.C., our international economics correspondent. Morning to you, Barry, as well. Well, good morning, Peter, and it's uh, it's a delight to have two of us on this side of the Pacific. So, welcome, welcome, Mark. <laughs> so we better thank you. It's great to be back in many ways. So we better start talking about the U.S. Then there's been a lot of data from the U.S. and China indicating um, a slowdown. First of all, in the U.S., um, we had a New York Fed Reserve survey of manufacturers coming in much weaker than expected. The New York Fed's Empire Manufacturing Index tumbled to minus 31.3. It was 11.1 in the positive the previous month. That's the second largest monthly decline on record and the lowest headline reading in the survey's history. Other data from the U.S. shows home builder confidence fell uh, in August and the rate of new home construction has fallen to its lowest level since 2021. And industrial production showed the smallest annual gain since January. The Atlanta Fed GDP tracker for Q3 was cut to 1.8% yesterday from 2.5%. So, Barry, are you feeling a slowdown there? Are there signs of a slowdown in the economy? No, I don't feel it and I don't see it. And, uh, you know, I listen to what you say and I don't contest any of those statistics. But let me just throw a couple more 
your way, and that would be that uh, the industrial production figures that came out today, up six-tenths of 1% in July, but manufacturing was up even slightly more. But car production, which is slumped because of the chip shortage, was up a full 6%. Mm. And you've got record earnings or sales from Walmart and Home Depot. You've got... Uh, record sales coming from other retailers. You've got uh, petrol gasoline prices at a nine-week low. You've mm. got West Texas crude at a seven-month low. So I, I see an economy that is growing here in the States, not shrinking. Maybe that Fed, uh, New York Fed empire manufacturing index. Perhaps New York is not typically a benchmark of what's going on in manufacturing around the rest of the United States. Is that possible? Oh, it is possible. But Mark, what what do you see? Because you've got fresh eyes on this big continent of yeah. ours. No, I am. You know, I've been I've been in I was in California first, and then Minnesota, and Illinois, and now in, now in Washington. I see the same thing. You know, at least you know it's anecdotal, but I see the same thing. Stores are busy, not only the WalMarts, the Targets, and others, and and people are active. What I don't see is people in offices. Huh. Uh, one of, one of the companies I work with, our office has several hundred people normally in it. There were about 10 there today. Mm. People are working from home and they're not out on the streets, but they seem to be buying. They seem to be, at least at this point, uh, fueling the economy. Uh, is there a slowdown going on, though, in the housing market? Is that now being affected by rising interest rates? Yes. Uh, I'll take that one, Mark, if you don't mind. I, I think, yeah, yes, you do, do see that uh, housing is slowing down. That's the idea. I mean, if you've got higher interest rates, mortgage rates have doubled so far this year, but still low. Uh, the housing market, housing starts are down. Home sales are coming out tomorrow. They're going to be expected to be down 4% in the latest month. So, yeah, but housing had been super hot, not hot like, say, 2006, but too hot. Mm -hmm. So uh, this slowdown in housing, I don't think, is serious. Stuart, if we look at this from overseas, there's this disconnect, isn't there? The data is suggesting a slowdown. The real GDP trackers are suggesting a slowdown. But then when we listen to Stuart and Mark on the ground and also listen to the markets, uh, they, they don't seem to see it. No, I, I think this is very typical of the circumstance that we're facing. You know, we had a very serious um, last couple of years of problems with COVID and um, people not working in offices, a lot of uh, redundancy and that sort of thing. And so there was a very sharp bounce back, uh, which occurred towards the end of last year, earlier this year. And so based on the sort of move from the bounce back to now, where we, we're, we're trying to get to a fairly normalized position in, in most of the Western economies anyway, um, I, you'd expect to see quite a lot of conflicting economic data come about. And I think that's exactly what's coming out right now. Um, the, the feel on the ground is different from the numbers, but that's, that's rather typical of the situation. Um, but where does it lead to? Um, and that's, that's really the big, the big question that we're all trying to grapple with. Um, does this mean that uh, the economy is slowing down, or does it mean that the economy is now about normal from where it should be after the disruptions of the last couple of years. And, and, uh, that's Stuart, the I think the answer to the 
to the question you're posing is the Fed wants a slower U.S. economy. They're getting it, but there's still so much money in this economy and still all of the distortions that Mark mentions about, you know, work from home, which is absolutely real. Nonetheless, record port volume. That's at Los Angeles, Long Beach, Oakland, Savannah, record port volume. So yeah. this is exactly the right time for the Federal Reserve to be raising interest rates because apparently they're able to raise rates without really wrecking the economy. And, and the interesting thing is, Barry, you're, what you're saying is exactly the same in many other parts, Europe as well as Asia. There is an awful lot of money out there and the money doesn't have a home. Um, with interest rates, although they're going up, uh, the, the amount that you're getting on deposit hasn't gone up as much as the, the amount you'd have to pay on loans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what we're seeing is um, people with the money, and the money is going into markets, and that's what's sustaining markets quite well. Mark, um, President Biden has signed uh, his basically smaller version of the Build Back Better plan uh, into yes. law today, which is going to provide a lot of money in particular uh, for, for climate measures. It's oddly called the Inflation Reduction Act, although it doesn't seem to do much about reducing inflation. <laughs> but nevertheless, is this a significant piece of legislation that's going to make a big difference to the economy? Well, I mean, Barry probably could comment on this, uh, on this more than I could. It, it may do eventually, but of course, in reducing inflation, not so much on climate change, it's the most dramatic, I think, in in U.S. history. What kind of impact it's going to have in the end is, is, is not certain, but it's, it rose from the dead. It was like the phoenix, really, really because it, it seemed to be gone. And this is also playing now to the Democratic base. Republicans have been playing to their base. This is playing to the Democratic base. But it's people, I think, and Barry can comment on this. But also people I talk to, even though they're spending, even though we said so, don't feel don't feel that more that comfortable with the economy. And they're always looking around the corner. And, you know, although, as mentioned, petrol prices, gas prices are down. A lot of people are still complaining about it mm -hmm. and about, about other areas. So it's, it's, a, it's very unsettled. At least that's my impression. Maui, is this significant? Yeah. Well, I would simply add to what Mark says. I think that, um, look, this is a big expansion of government. Uh, these are government initiatives. There, there's going to be subsidies on, uh, on certain pharmaceutical prices. Uh, there's going to be additional health care offered. These, again, as a subsidy from government. The, uh, the climate initiatives almost all involve more government spending. Uh, the, the, the administration will say, well, hold it. We're, we're going to tax the, the rich and, and uh, it will be deficit neutral. We'll see. I'm skeptical, but uh, it's certainly a victory for Joe Biden. Stuart, out here, we've had a lot of data as well on the China economy. Not good, really. Retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investment, all slowing and all slowing by more than um, expected. What, what's your take on what that means for, for the economy here? Is, is there a disconnect here also between the real economy and the data or is the data got it right here? No, I think the data is, well, the data obviously is the data, right? But um, I, I think what is happening is that, uh, again, people are still in lockdown in some parts of China. China has not come, bounced back anything like as strongly as had been hoped or expected. And this is causing uh, not just 
for China, but for the region, um, an economic slowdown because mm. of the influence that China has over the region as a whole. Hong Kong, as we know, still has uh, quarantine, and uh, there is still quarantine in China. There isn't the free traffic of people. So you know, we don't have the open economies that the Western world has um, in, in, in the respect that people can come and go as they wish and, and do their business as they wish. That is still being restricted. Premier Li Keqiang has asked local officials, gathered them at a meeting from six of the key provinces that accounts for about 40% of the economy and has asked them to bolster pro-growth measures after all these latest data. The problem is, though, every time we hear Premier Lee or another senior official talk, they don't seem to address the real crux of the matter, do they? Which is these zero-COVID policies which are wrecking the economy. Yes, and, and that, is the, that is the big problem. Um, President Xi Jinping has um, made that policy um, so important, and until after the um, big political get-together at the end of October, where President Xi Jinping is expected to be a re-elected president for a third term, um, I think it is unlikely that anybody will want to challenge him or the zero-COVID policy. After then, we may see some change, and, and I think that's the big issue that uh, a lot of people are looking forward to, to say, well, this is when change has got to happen. And, 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 um, uh, but before then, all, all that uh, can be done, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Li Keqiang uh, made the right noises by saying to various provinces, particularly the provinces that are so productive in, in terms of China's um, major economies, um, yeah, that they've got to try to do more. I don't suppose they're, I don't suppose they're trying to do less anyway. I think they're always mm -hmm. trying to do more. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's just trying to urge them on uh, a bit more. Mark, is zero COVID yeah, I, on the mainland still the, the biggest, uh, the biggest I, issue? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Stuart because maybe this is just, this is just setting the stage for doing something, something later because even the, some, of, some, of, some of the senior Chinese advisors and officials who have mentioned the, the, COVID, the COVID issue have been sort of sidelined, at least publicly. So clearly, clearly that's, that's not welcomed, at least for now. But again, the hope is, and I hope Stuart is right, that, that they start moving in this direction. We, our two themes for our group this, this quarter are uh, our resilience and realignment. And really, much related to the things we, the issues we've talked about, the resilience because of all these ups and downs in China, especially with the COVID policy, and with with the property issue, and with debt, and with all the other things, and realignment, figuring out what that means for your businesses, and how you, you know, how you're able to stay afloat. Obviously, some companies do very well in this, but many of them, um, you know, face challenges, especially when there's so much uncertainty. And consumption is. One of those areas, employment, which you also measured, especially youth employment, all these issues are, are playing on them and, and making, it, making it even more challenging than usual. Barry, we're in the situation now where China is, is cutting uh, key interest rates. It's cut the medium-term lending facility. It cut its reverse repo rate uh, on Tuesday, only, only by, um, on Monday, sorry, only by 10 basis points. But nevertheless, it seems significant because China's now moving in the opposite direction to the U.S. <laughs> yes. Hey, it makes life interesting, doesn't it? I mean, the rest of the world is uh, raising rates, certainly Europe, certainly North America, uh, Australia. 
I mean, China goes the opposite direction, but of course China has a housing problem, and uh, China is uh, is tackling it in its own way. But it certainly makes things interesting because it means that the global economy is not completely in sync. Mm. And on that housing problem. Um, we saw a big surge in mainland property companies yesterday on reports that Chinese regulators plan to provide liquidity support to five or six key developers by guaranteeing their refinancing of, of onshore bonds. Uh, the list includes Longfor, Gemdao, Country Garden, Sifi. Stuart, how... I suppose that the big change here is that up to now, Beijing has been focused on helping homeowners rather than the property developers. This seems to be the first time it's now started to talk about, uh, if this report is correct, about significant support uh, for property developers themselves, although only five or six of them. Is this significant? Well, yes, the significance is that this is a lot of hope without a lot of fact. Um, you know, part of the problem is that most of the property developers in, in a Western world sense would be totally bankrupt mm. uh, and they would maybe have gone out of business. And China doesn't want to see that happen. And, and the names that you've get, given are, of course, the biggest or among the biggest. But uh, there's the great big elephant in the room, Evergrande, which is um, in multiple mm. billions of dollars in debt uh, with little hope of being able to pay it back. I, I think the report is more in hope than fact. Um, because the, the, the property market in China is so overprovided. You know, there, depending on which report you, you read, there are something like 50 million empty um, flats that have been built and, and no one's taking them up. They haven't been sold. Um, and, and, of course, that's going to be a hangover the property uh, developers that built them and, mm. and among these names as well. So um, I think there's, there's a long, long way to go and there will be a lot of con conflicting information coming out about different uh, China property companies. So uh, I wouldn't expect it all to be um, very consistent. Mark, I suppose the problem is out of this, it's only five or six of them, isn't it? Whereas there's a lot of them who are in trouble um, and developers overall could well report about a 30% decline in earnings uh, for the first half of this year. There's a lot of others still in trouble. Yeah, and it, it affects all businesses. You know, our members, I mean, even those that are not directly involved in property, maybe they, they sell to, uh, to, to builders and, and so on, but even those that aren't are affected by this and it just adds again to the uh to the, to the con concerns and until this settles down a little bit and maybe it, it won't for a while um it's gonna it's gonna be an issue and and of course it's compounded by the by the uh COVID policies which 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 again put up barriers to moving forward in in other areas this so you know it's um this it's 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 it's, it's, it's it's a challenging situation, right? The thing I don't like about this, although I suppose it's uh, par for the course on the mainland, is once again the state is picking the winners and losers. It's not the market yeah. that's going to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, but um, the, the, the market is standing back and uh, just waiting for something to happen. And, uh, and, and, and in the absence of the market doing anything, the state apparently feels obliged that it does have to do something. I'm not sure that's really true. Um, it's, uh, it, it's creating a rather false position, frankly. And Beijing uh, won't let the market work, will it? If it did let the market work, a lot of these would go out of business quite normally, um, but then others would, you know, will be able to pick up and move on. 
Yeah, and it's not just the property industry where that is applied. You know, as we've read and seen, the tech industry is also yes. very much under pressure from the state um, for, for making investments to try to grow its own business, and the state doesn't like it. This interference is, is showing how, although the capital markets in, in China are big, um, there are still a lot of learning curves to go up before they get to be anything like normal. And I suppose you're thinking about Tencent, which is um, rumoured, according to Reuters, being forced to sell all or part of its 17% stake in Metuan, which is worth about $24 billion, because uh, the regulators apparently don't like uh, big firms like Tencent having stakes in, uh, in companies that impact people's lives. It seems, it's, it seems to me, Stuart, that Beijing is almost out now to try and wreck some of its biggest and its best companies. They're becoming shadows of their former selves. They can't grow, they can't invest, they can't take over other firms. They don't like, they don't like the power not being vested in the state. That is the, the, that is the bottom line, frankly. And it's very clear that um, many of these companies, tech companies especially, that have grown massively, and they're, they're worth um, hundreds of millions of dollars, but and, and they represent a significant part of the total Chinese economy. But they're run by individuals, and the individuals have become very powerful, and that is what the state doesn't like. And, and so it's trying, and has been trying for some time now, to, to weaken that power. Um, and, and I think this will carry on for a little bit longer. Mark and Barry, what do you make of this? I mean, Tencent is it, it's going to report its earnings later today. It could report its first revenue decline ever um, in its history as a result of all this interference. Well, I would say simply that the members of Congress probably are delighted that China is experiencing some problems. Because whether you're a Democrat or Republican, the knives are out. I mean, it's the old Taiwan issue. And frankly... Tencent, that will get some attention in the financial press here, but as to the man on the street, not at all. I was just on the Hill today, and I can, I can second that, <laughs> that, that observation. The other thing is, of course, what you always worry about is by, by the state, and there are obviously some overreaches by some of these companies, and maybe something has to be done. But at the same time, what does this do to their creativity? What does this do to the to the uh, aspects that made them so strong? You know, does it does it does it undermine the the tech industry, which has been so impressive, especially some of these companies you're talking about? And then what happens? Because that that's a big issue, including for a lot of international companies who have such a close relationship with many of them. Barry, finally, on one, one other topic, we had five of China's largest state-owned companies on Friday said they're going to delist uh, from the New York Stock Exchange. They're going to start that process uh, by, the, uh, by the end of the month. Is there any sign of a deal at all or compromise between U.S. and Chinese regulators over this? No, at least I don't see it. And uh, I think uh, all one can say is that New York's loss is going to be Hong Kong's gain. Well, it may not be easy for all these companies to list in Hong Kong because, the, you know, the requirements uh, for listing in, in Hong Kong are quite stringent. But it does make you wonder, doesn't it, why do these companies not want to disclose their audit work? What, what is it that they're afraid of? I think it comes back to the issue, though, that the New York Stock Exchange is trying its best to protect the investors. Bear in mind that there have been a number of collapses of these Chinese companies 
that were listed in New York and therefore investors lost their money. So they're trying their best to find ways to protect the investors' interests by checking the accounts and, and ensuring that the audit is done correctly. And uh, I think that's, personally, I think that's a very reasonable approach. Mm. And, and, and clearly it is those companies that are trying to maybe cheat the uh, shareholders, cheat the investors that are are under most concern. But bear in mind that the five companies that are being referred to as, at the moment as probably seeking a relisting are state-owned enterprises. They're not private enterprises. So there, there is a big difference between state-owned and, and private in this circumstance. Okay, well, on that note, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultants. You heard Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look at the markets for this morning. Uh, in Australia now, the SX200 is flat. The Nikkei 225 in Japan moving further ahead. It's up about three quarters of 1%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea up about a fifth of a percent. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 100 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock with more Money Talk. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Anna Fenton. The weather forecasts, hot sunny periods and a few showers. Maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees and sunny intervals and a few showers tomorrow. Temperature right now is 28 degrees, 91% relative humidity. Take 32, here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The operator of the Kaitak cruise terminal says it would take between three to six months to bring cruises back to Hong Kong, and many were bypassing the city with itineraries planned several years ahead. Jeff Bent, Managing Director of Worldwide Cruise Terminals, told RTHK that only Royal Caribbean was still operating here and pushing to get cruises to nowhere restarted. They've been put on hold since February. Mr. Bent said operators needed transparent COVID policies, such as details of when cruises would be suspended if COVID cases were found. The rest of the world basically treats COVID as a flu now, and in general, the only requirements related to COVID are either you're fully vaccinated or you take a test before embarking and there aren't any other conditions for sailing. So the cruise lines that went from being in a very fluid position now have itineraries planned out for their ships for the next several years. So it'll be much harder for us to to bring a ship to Hong Kong now, especially if our policies are not aligned with the rest of the world. A pediatric specialist has called on parents to keep a close eye on their children who are infected with COVID, saying a post-COVID condition could put them into intensive care. Dr. Mike Kwan, a consultant in the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Unit at Princess Margaret Hospital, said multi-system inflammatory syndrome, or MISC, can affect the patient's heart, brain, liver, and kidneys. Symptoms including a high fever and a skin rash and what we call strawberry tongues and also multi-system inflammatory conditions. And this condition actually quite serious and can be life-threatening. And in Hong Kong, around half the children needed to be admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit. And this condition warrants a long-term follow-up. And we are planning to follow up these children in the Hong Kong Children's Hospital. He added doctors were working with children with long COVID symptoms, including serious hair loss and temporary loss of vision. 
A chief manager at the hospital authority says hospitals are steadily filling up with COVID patients, and it is getting to the point where non-emergency services might be affected. Lau Kahin said over the past week, more than 200 patients had been admitted each day. Dr. Lau was speaking at the Center for Health Protection's daily press briefing. How can we arrange the best for the increasing number of uh, patients admitted to the hospital? We have to readjust our services. Uh, we try to postpone some services that the patient may not be affected too much. For example, some elective surgery, some elective endoscopy, as well as some elective radiological examination. Hong Kong recorded 5,162 COVID cases yesterday, of which 272 were imported. The news from RTHK.